You know, this season comes, Advent, Christmas season comes, and unless we are intentional, it will railroad us, <laughs> right? Life is busy, and this season is even more busy, busy at work for people. It's busy for moms at home taking care of kids and preparing meals and gatherings and so forth, and it's, it's just a busy season. And so if we don't, if we aren't intentional, we'll get to the day after Christmas and be like, I think, I, I think the reason for the season is Jesus. I mean, it is, but it wasn't. So grab one of these. This can be a, a resource, I think, to help. I, th- I, think the day, I think the readings start on December 1st, and I would encourage dads to uh, take the lead at home with this, especially if you have kiddos, but to take this home and uh, read with your families. Um, well, today's the first day of Advent. Advent is the season in which Christians have for centuries celebrated the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. The word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means uh, a coming or an arrival. And there has never been an arrival like that of the eternal Son of God coming into the world through the incarnation. It is the arrival of all arrivals. Okay, this is what Christmas is all about, right? We, we didn't sing it today, but we will. Joy to the world. Why? The Lord has come, right? The Lord has come. He has come. And because he's come, the earth, everyone everywhere is exhorted to receive their king. That's what we're exhorted to receive our king. The world is exhorted to receive their king and make room in your heart for this king. With all the ways in which the world, and quite frankly in which Christians, have corrupted the Christmas season, and of course it has been corrupted, I mean it has been messed with, the answer is not to dampen people's excitement and joy or the celebratory nature of the season. That's not the answer. The answer, rather, is that we celebrate like Christians. It's that we celebrate like people who understand the significance of Christ coming into the world, which means that we need to be reminded often about the significance of just that, the eternal Son of God becoming a human being, entering into this world. And we also need to be provoked to celebrate like Christians who understand with gifts, music, good food, lights, trees, all of it to the glory of God and with Christ at the center. And this is what I hope you will be helped with this Christmas season. Quite frankly, to go overboard in all the right ways. Okay, to go overboard in all of the right ways. Overboard in joy. Amen? Do you have too much joy? Is everyone here just too much joy? I can't handle any more of it. Okay, then hopefully this season we can go overboard in joy and overboard in generosity, giving according to our ability, overboard in love for one another, overboard in love for Christ. We sing a song that says that the coming of Christ was the dawn of redeeming grace. And the sun has been shining ever since. He has come to save us from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And for those who are in Christ, we have experienced his saving power delivering us from Satan's power.
So today we look at a, uh, I think, a pretty remarkable passage, and, and it's a very, very familiar passage. In fact, uh, at least the first part, verse 6, I'm sorry, Brian read verses 2, 6, and 7. Verse 6 is very familiar. Um, it's one of the most commonly quoted passages during this season, and for good reason, but um, we need God's help to see the truth of this and have it impact our lives. Let me read it again, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then this phrase at the end, which I love so much, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This prophecy was spoken by Isaiah, of course, 700 years prior to the coming of Christ, prior to the birth of Jesus. This prophecy came at a time of incredible spiritual darkness among the Israelites. The moral and spiritual darkness was culminating in God's judgment on the northern tribes of Israel. The judgment would come in the form of the Assyrians invading and ransacking and ravaging the northern tribes. This was a word of hope for them that among the northern tribes in Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles, which is the northern part of Israel, the Messiah would come and light would dawn upon them. It was also a spiritually dark time when the fulfillment of this prophecy came about. The birth of Christ. Amazingly, you know the story, the Magi come from the east, they come to Jerusalem They follow the star. They know, probably from some Old Testament scriptures that were left in ancient Persia, they knew that this was the star of the king of the Jews. And they come to Jerusalem and they start asking questions. Where is the king of the Jews born? Matthew chapter 2 says, Herod, who is king, and all in Jerusalem were troubled by this hearing. They were troubled to hear that the king of the Jews has been born. Actually, the word can be, can be translated terrified. They were terrified. Herod, a king, was terrified to hear that a king had been born. And so he began asking the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, where is the Messiah to be born? And amazingly, they tell Herod in Bethlehem. And then what do those religious leaders do? Do they race to Bethlehem to find the Messiah? No. They go back to business as usual. It's stunning. When you think about the spiritual darkness, it is breathtaking. And yet, we find ourselves in a spiritually dark time today. We find find ourselves in a time of deep corruption and moral decay and darkness. We live in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. We're surrounded by immeasurable blessings. We live off the spiritual capital of our forefathers, spiritual forefathers, And yet we find ourselves utterly, and I'm saying as a people, as a nation, utterly spiritually destitute. And so this Christmas, I think we as Christians need a renewed faith in the glorious hope that dawned at the coming of Christ. 
When I say we need a renewed faith, what I mean is that we need a spiritual awakening. It's not just people outside the church that need this. We need this as well. We need to have the eyes of faith opened. Paul talks about having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. So having the eyes of faith open, it means that you come to a deeper understanding. Maybe we could put it this way. Things that you know in your head begin to really click deep down in your soul. This is what we need. So the explosive power of this truth of Christ coming into the world and all that it means is lodged in our souls and impacts us such that it comes out of our fingertips. In other words, lodged in our souls and it makes an impact on every part of our lives out to our toes and our fingertips. In the prologue of John's gospel, the apostle John says the following. He said, John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the apostle John really did see the glory of Christ in the flesh. He walked with him, he talked with him, he touched him, he sat across the table from him, he heard his voice audibly, and unfortunately, well, we don't get that privilege. But we can see the glory of Christ by faith, and this is what we need, to see the glory of Christ by faith, to behold the glory of Christ by faith. By faith. And I would suggest this is a massive and glorious privilege that we have to behold the glory of Christ in this life by faith. John Owen, who was a Puritan, wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. And he said this It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the the life and power of faith grow stronger. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ. And this is what we need. This is what we need. We need to be men and women, children, full of faith. Full of faith. Full of faith in what God says. Full of faith in his promises. And so this morning, as we go through this text, I want you to see three things. I really do want you to see these things by faith. First, the glory of Christ's humility. Second, the glory of Christ's person. And I'll unpack what that means later. And then third, the glory of Christ's empire. First, the glory of Christ's humility. Verse six, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The incarnation, God becoming man, without ceasing to be God at all, is an absolute astounding miracle. One that we can't wrap our minds around. And praise God, we can't. If you could wrap your mind around your God, then he is too small and too tameable. The eternal God became man. He emptied himself by becoming a human being, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of Man, the God of eternity, entered time. The creator God entered his creation and was born of a woman, a woman he made. 
Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, lowered himself all the way to becoming a single cell in the womb of his mother. Have you ever thought about that? A single cell in the womb of his mother. He humbled himself to be laid in a manger that he created to be, mer- to be, to be nursed at Mary's breast. The little child Mary held was, as the song says. You guys know the song, Mary, did you know? The lyrics are powerful. The, the baby that Mary held was the great I am. The I am God. The eternal God. This is stunning. Now we might wonder why Christ came in such a way. Martin Luther helps us to understand at least partially why Jesus came in this humble way. He said this, If Christ had arrived with trumpets and lain in a cradle of gold, his birth would have been a splendid affair. But it would not be a comfort to me. He was rather to lie in the lap of a poor maiden and to be thought of little significance in the eyes of the world. Now, Martin Luther says, now I can come to him as he reveals himself to the lowly and the miserable. The coming of Christ is a powerful act of God. It is a powerful act of God, but it is what Luther elsewhere describes as God's left-handed power. God's power disguised in weakness. It's a miracle of miracles. I mean, how can we fathom such a miracle, but it is a power disguised in weakness. God stoops low to come to those who are low. Isaiah 57. We need to be reminded of this. This is who we are. Isaiah 57, 15 says that, that God inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He dwells in a high and holy place. Guess what, guys? A place we can't go. But he also dwells among the lowly. We can go there because that's who we are in ourselves. The lowly. And when God stoops low, it is always an act of grace. Because we cannot get to where he is, he comes to where we are. And so verse 6 says, a child is born to us. You ever notice those words, to us? Or King James, I think, I think says unto us. A child is born. Unto us a son is given. A, a, a child is born to us. A son is given to us. This is the language of sheer grace. What have we done to deserve such kindness? The obvious answer is nothing, right? Grace doesn't make a bit of sense to us. In fact, I would suggest we often recoil at the idea of grace when we really understand what it is, right? God is free in bestowing his grace. We can't control his grace. And if there's one thing we want in life, it is to control things. And God's grace is uncontrollable. He bestows it on whom he will. But we live in a world in which, generally speaking, you sow and you reap, And you reap often in proportion to how you sow. 
God's grace is him giving his great bounty and riches to the undeserving. He stoops low to give us what we cannot get ourselves. Ultimately, Christ stoops low to bring us to himself. C.S. Lewis has, I think, some great imagery for us to think about in terms, or in, in light of this. In his book, Miracles, here's what he said. But he, speaking of Jesus Christ, goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop low in order to lift up. He must almost disappear under the load before he can incredibly straighten his back and march off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. He comes low in order to lift us up. Mary, in her great Magnificat, says, He brings down the mighty from their thrones, and he what? Exalts those of low estate. Of course, the end for which Christ came into the world was not to lay in a manger. It wasn't so that we could have nice nativity scenes of a little baby in a manger with the shepherds around and so forth. The ultimate reason for which Christ came into the world was so that he might die on a cross, so that he might grow up to be a man who would fulfill the law of God in our place on our behalf and then die in our place on our behalf as our substitute. He was a child born, a son given, so that we might be raised to the glorious privilege of becoming sons and daughters of God. Now, you and I can't make any of this happen, right? It's already happened. And you and I can't undo what Christ has done. We are simply called to look in awestruck wonder at the glory of Christ and his humility and coming in such a lowly and humble way. We also see in this passage the glory of Christ's person. Verse 6 says, And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First, we see the government resting on the shoulder of this child, this son given. He is one with authority. He's one one who's authorized to carry the government of God forward. He's royalty. He's a king. And he's a king, we see, with four names. You guys see that? The government rests upon his shoulders, shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here we see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. When the Bible speaks of the different names of God or gives God different names, What's that all about? Have you ever thought about that? There's lots of names for God in the Bible. For instance, in the Old Testament, if you see a passage with Lord, all capitalized, hopefully you know this, it's the name Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. If you see Lord with capital L, lowercase o-r-d, it's probably the name Adonai. 
which means sovereign one. And then God has other names. His name is El Kanah. He's a jealous God. His name is El Elyon. He's the most high God. So he has all of these names. What's, what's the point in giving God all of these names or God revealing himself in all of these names? Well, each one of these names communicates something to us about who God is, what he's like. And so here we see four names given to Christ. Again, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Think of it like this. God, when when we look at who God is, he's not like a two-dimensional or even three-dimensional image. It's like looking at a diamond where every time you turn it, you see some new facet of the glory and beauty of a diamond. So it says that Jesus' name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now it's interesting. Some translations actually separate Wonderful and Counselor. I wonder if anyone here has a translation that does that. King James, New King James, I think for sure do. Wonderful, so it says, instead of wonderful counselor, as the ESV translates it, it says wonderful, comma, counselor. And I think the reason why is because the Hebrew word translated wonderful is actually a noun rather than a descriptive word, an adjective. The word might be better translated as wonder or marvel. If you see a wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world or something like that, or a marvel, it's a thing that you behold. In fact, the word wonder or wonders is the most common English word that this Hebrew word is translated as. And so I'm compelled to simply follow suit and say that our Lord is truly a wonder. We sang earlier, This, the everlasting wonder, Christ was born Lord of all. This everlasting wonder, Jesus truly is a wonder. My daughter Sabrina got to go to, actually, and son-in-law, Grant and Sabrina got to go to Peru recently. Grant for work and Sabrina got to tag along and do some fun things. And she went to uh, Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu, which is one of the, I think it's one of the seven wonders of the modern world. Christ, Machu Picchu does not compare to Christ. He is a wonder. And I would suggest this. If we are bored with Jesus Christ, it is our problem, not his. It is our big problem, not his. He also is indeed a wonderful counselor. Paul says that Jesus Christ is not only the power of God, but also the wisdom of God. And how does he counsel us? He counsels us with his word and by his spirit. He knows exactly what we need, and he always gives the good counsel that we need to those who want it. Sadly, we often don't. Often we're too content, like the Laodiceans, We see, we're good, we got everything we need. But even with that wayward church, that lukewarm church, the Laodiceans, how did Jesus respond to them? How did he speak to them? Here's what he said. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe your nakedness and the shame shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Christ is a wonderful counselor. He knows what we need. He counsels us through his word and his spirit. He is truly, a one, he truly is wonderful and he is a wonderful counselor. He's also given the name Mighty God. God is the Hebrew word El. Okay, so you see God all over the place. El, mighty, the word mighty is Gabor, which that just sounds like a mighty word, doesn't it? El Gabor. Jesus Christ is El Gabor. He is mighty God. The child born, the son given, is none other than the mighty God. Much to the chagrin of Jehovah's Witnesses and every other group that denies the deity of Christ, this is a clear affirmation that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is mighty God. There is no other. And of course, Jesus, when he walked on the earth with his disciples, he was fully aware of who he was, and he did not hide it. He received worship from his disciples, right? Because he's God and deserves worship. He spoke of himself as many different places and all the I am statements. It's a clear reference to Jesus Christ being Yahweh, the I am God. In John chapter 8, the Sanhedrin picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is mighty God. All power belongs to him. He is not limited in the least bit. He's also, given, he's also given the name Everlasting Father. Now, when you hear this, I hope at least the thought enters your mind, wait a second, we're Trinitarians. Jesus is the Son, not the Father, right? Right? Is that true? Okay. Jesus is, right? I, t- I do this with my kids. How many gods are there? There's one. How many persons? Three. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons, Okay. And then I turn around, how many persons? Three, try to trip him up. Anyways, um, he is the son, not the father. And that's true, of course. But Jesus Christ is tender and merciful like a father. I think of Psalm 103 that says, uh, God is compassionate because he knows that we are but dust. And Jesus certainly is merciful and tender like a father who knows our weaknesses. He's not only that, but he's eternally one with the Father. He is the image of the invisible God and Father. He reveals the Father. Remember what he said to Philip? Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the only way to the Father. Jesus Christ brings us to the Father. And so he's given this name, Everlasting Father. And then last, he's given the name Prince of Peace. He's a prince, and he's a prince that brings peace. This was the message the angels proclaimed. The one angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and said, I bring you good news of great joy, and so forth. And then this mighty host of angels, the word host means this army of angels, appeared and began singing this song, Glory to God in the Highest, and peace on earth. 
when the glorious invasion took place at the coming of Christ, rather than declaring war on this rebellious and dark world, the armies of angels came declaring peace. And for good reason, the Prince of Peace had been born. He came to bring peace. The prophecy of Micah chapter 5 says the Messiah doesn't just bring peace like something apart from him, like a gift he just gives to us, but that he himself is our peace. Of course, peace with God first and foremost. So this is who your Messiah is. When I say, who do we celebrate at Christmas? Or who is this child born, the son given? Everyone says, Jesus, amen. But he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You and I can't add to Jesus. We can't take anything away from him. We are called simply to look in awestruck wonder at the glory of who he is and live in the light of who he is. Finally, in this passage, we see the glory of the empire of Christ. What do I mean by that? Verse 7 says this. This is an an astounding verse. One that I think we, well, one that I think I need to understand better. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So verse 6 says the government, rests, government of God rests on the shoulder, uh, shoulders of Christ. And here we see that that government and peace will increase and spread without end. The word government here means dominion or rule or reign or empire. Think of like, you know, Alexander the Great and his mighty empire and how basically 10 years straight he just kept marching through city and people group after people group just conquering and spreading his empire. It doesn't compare to Christ's. His empire spreads and increases without end. Of course, the word peace is the Hebrew word for, it's the, it's the English word for the Hebrew word shalom. You guys have heard the word shalom? Okay. Shalom is one of those words. It's such a pregnant word. I heard some, one person describe it. Maybe the best way to describe shalom is, I mean, it's not just like a good vibe. Like I feel personal peace right now. It, one person described it as uh, a completeness. Peace in every way. Completeness in every way. Peace in the fullest sense of the word. This is a stupendous promise that the kingdom and government of Christ will increase and spread without end. Now, some, we, probably some here, I myself, are sometimes tempted to completely spiritualize this and then push it off into the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. That when Jesus comes back, right, in a moment, it's over, and then his kingdom will spread without end and increase and grow. 
But I have a hard time doing that with the language of this verse. Listen to what it says. Jesus Christ will establish the kingdom and uphold the kingdom with justice and righteousness. That to me sounds like a process. Something that happens over time, not all at once. And then it says, from this time forth and forevermore. From what time forth? I think it seems reasonable to say from the time that the child was born. From the time the son was given. All this language seems to me to describe not something that happens all at once, but gradually over time. Like Jesus said, like a mustard seed that starts really, really tiny and then grows to be an enormous plant. Do you remember the the message that Jesus Christ spoke when he began his public ministry? It was a very simple message. Like six words or seven words. Trying to count right. Anyways, really short. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You guys remember that? You guys aware of that? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he came, he came to spread the kingdom of God. He, he described it this way at one, at one point. He said, if I cast out a demon with the finger of God, then what has happened to that person? The kingdom of God has come upon them. Jesus went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil, Acts chapter 10. Now, of course, we look around and we see how things are and it seems as though the light is being snuffed out by darkness, doesn't it? It kind of does seem that way. It appears as though the kingdom of God is being thwarted. It seems as though the church is shaken and there's apostasy in many places. But... We need to have faith to believe God's promise. I was reading a, a well, it won't, doesn't matter, Athanasius. He was around in the fourth century. When Athanasius was alive, there was massive apostasy everywhere in the church. The Arian heresy, which was the false teaching that Christ was not God, was spreading At one point, a friend of Athanasius said, everyone is turning away from you and the teaching of Christ. And yet, Athanasius had the faith to say, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, a seed has been planted, the growth of which will never be stopped. I mean, he just had the faith to see it's spreading everywhere. (laughs) It's amazing. He believed that the coming of Christ into the world changed everything and that something had happened that could never be stopped. John Calvin comments on verse 7 here, Isaiah 9-7, and uh, this is so good because I think it gives us a realistic picture of how things can look but then points us to God's promise. And I want to read kind of a lengthy quote here, but this is really good. Here's what he said. Though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it it appears as if it were about to perish at every moment, yet God not only protects and defends it, 
but also extends its boundaries far and wide and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. We ought firmly to believe this, that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith. When we learn that amidst the mad outcry and violent attacks of enemies, the kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God. So that, though the whole world should oppose and resist, it will remain through all ages. We must not judge of of its stability from the present appearances of things, but from the promise. Amen? Which assures us of its continuance and of its constant increase. I remember hearing uh, somebody say once, that our tendency, or at least the temptation, is for all of us to do newspaper or headline exegesis. Where we read the headlines and we say, oh my goodness, this must mean, you know, we go to the Bible, rather than going to the Scriptures and looking for what God says, rather than going to what's happening in the world and try to interpret the Bible from that. We sing the song, Joy to the World, which the last verse says this. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Do we believe that? We sing it, and I hope you sing it loudly from the heart. How far has the curse spread in the world? Everywhere. But Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Now, the last phrase, I think, is so helpful because this is not telling us to do something. I mean, there are things we're to do, but this passage is not ending with telling us to do something. What's the guarantee that this will happen. The last phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Isn't that amazing? What more guarantee do we need? What more guarantee do we need than to hear your God, who is the Lord of hosts, Lord of, right, Jehovah Sabaoth. Sabaoth is hosts, right? The Lord of the armies of angels. He will do it. He will do it. What more could we ask for? Who can stop him? And so, as we begin this Advent season, I want to challenge us to think about the coming of Christ as, I don't want to say God put something in motion because that's not the right, but that God did something. He began something that cannot be undone and it will impact the whole world. I remember hearing Martin Lloyd-Jones once describe the difference between advice and news. He said, advice is counsel of something you must do. Like if I stand up here and say, oh my goodness, the enemies are coming. Pick up your swords. Let's fight. That's advice. (laughs) 
news, on the other hand, is an announcement of something that has already happened. Or an announcement of God, what God promises to do. And that's what we see in this passage. We see an announcement of, because we live on this side of the coming of Christ, we see an announcement of what God has done in Christ and of what God promises to do in the world and of how God promises to cause this kingdom, this government to grow and increase without end. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, a seed has been planted, the growth of which will never be stopped. So, I'm convinced we need to ask the Spirit to open our eyes by his grace so that we see differently these things and believe God's sure word of promise and then live in the light of it. There's another prophecy in the book of Isaiah that um, is in the 60th chapter, verses one and two, it says this. Now this is true of us. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you you. So, your king has come. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joy to his people. He has come in the flesh. He lived the life we could never live. He died in our place for our sins. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do ask you to cause this truth, these truths, the glory of the humility of Christ, the glory of the person of Christ, who he is described by these names that are given to him, and the glory of the kingdom of Christ, the empire that will spread and grow without end.